All right, uh, before I have you stand, uh, just taking you in context, we've been going through the book of John. We find ourselves at the last portion of John 18. Some of you are saying, well, what about Peter's denial? We skipped over that. I've done many sermons on that. You can get a copy of it uh, dealing with the, the only two times in the scriptures where the word anthrakia is found, which means black coal fire, which is the fire Peter was warming himself behind. And, and then we see it in John 21 where Jesus restores him, asks him three times, do you love me? Because Peter denied him three times. And, and I, I've gone through that. I, I felt compelled to go to John 18 with Pontius Pilate. And we're going to finish John 18 looking at the last portion of this passage. Um, putting it into context, uh, Jesus has been awake for a number of hours. Uh, as you recall, uh, when we looked at uh, the book of Mark, uh, Jesus had stayed up all night praying uh, while the disciples slept. And then the fiery serpent of 600 Roman soldiers descended into the Garden of Gethsemane and apprehended Jesus. Uh, he said, I am. And all 600 soldiers were pushed back by the power of God. They reassembled themselves, said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus was in, co- in control of the situation. Uh, we watched Peter try to take off the ear of Malchus and Jesus healed the ear. We studied that in the previous weeks. And now Jesus has been apprehended. He's been taken to Annas' house, now Caiaphas' house. He spent the night after having been beaten by the temple guards. Um, and when we take our trip to, um, to Israel, uh, we go to the home of Caiaphas. And um, I would say that place, uh, much like Antonio Fortress, are two um, very touching places for me. In the Antonio Fortress, when you pour water over the stone, the relief of a game that the Roman soldiers played called the King's Game appears, and and it's purported to be the exact site where they mocked Jesus and beat him. You can hear a pin drop, but even more so, and I remember being there with my wife and a large group of um, high-ranking Republican folks, and they, they weren't religious by any stretch of the imagination. They were attending, we were teaching, and here we were in um, in this dungeon and over the years they had built stairs into the dungeon for people to access it but prior to that it was just a hole in the ceiling that they would drop the prisoner through land on the hard stone nowhere in the dungeon is a place to lie down of any comfort it's cold and suffocating dark and almost um, a sense of despondency when you descend into the bowels of this dungeon. I remember being there and thinking after Peter denied him and everyone had bailed on him and they'd beaten him and dropped him into this hole. Uh, Thinking about what a night that was. The physical discomfort, but the anticipation of what awaited him. At this stage, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that his face was so marred, his visage, his face was so marred, unlike that of any other man. Almost to the point where he couldn't make eye contact with you because his sockets were so swollen. Isaiah declares that they pulled his beard out of his face. And um, here he was languishing in this hole. And I remember, I remember being there and thinking, What an amazing God that he would endure so much on my behalf. There's a 
Every time I go back, those are two locations that mean a great deal to me. And here we find him being removed from the whole of Caiaphas' home and now being brought before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is a Roman prefect. A prefect is only second to a senator in, in the Roman government, and then there's Caesar. As a prefect, he had once served as a procurate over the 12th Roman Legion, 6,000 men in Syria. He was a tough taskmaster, history records. Josephus says that he was vicious. And um, Pontius Pilate was married to Claudia Procura, who was the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. Um, His best friend was Sejunus, who was also a prefect, but over uh, the Praetorian Guard in the palace of Rome for Caesar Tiberius and he was his best friend. He managed to get Pilate uh, recommendation where he wore a very coveted possession, a ring given only by Caesar that said Amicus Caesar, which is friend of Caesar. Amicus Brief is a friend of the court. And this ring was one that gave you entrance into halls of power. So we find him to be a man of great authority. He oversees the Judean province for Rome. He has to deal with Caiaphas, uh, he, he struggles with the Jews. He, he doesn't understand their laws. He doesn't understand their diet. He doesn't understand their culture. He's doing his best to rule with Roman authority and, and, and try to allow them certain semblances of, of their religion to quell any riots. And we find now in this passage that he's awakened early in the morning, uh, which you don't do to a Roman governor or any other to for that matter. And we're going to see what takes place. He has great authority. He's a judge over the entire area. He's second only to a Roman senator, which carries great weight in the greatest empire the world had ever known. So there's authority behind his authority. There's power behind his authority. And this Jesus comes before Pilate. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Picking up at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. What he's saying is, I don't want anything to do with him. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The Jews were not permitted to kill anyone, only the Romans were. They wanted him dead. If the Jews killed him, he would be stoned to death. But now, as Jesus had prophesied, it says here in verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die, which we find in Isaiah 53 and in a number of messianic psalms and writings, that he'd be crucified, prophesied that he'd be crucified 800 years before crucifixion was invented. Fascinating. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. 
Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Before you sit, I want to read another account of the same occurrence out of Matthew 27, starting with verse 15. You don't have to turn there. Now at the feast, the the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just or righteous man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Now before you sit, Jesus is about to experience a beating that would be ordered by Pilate with a cat of nine tails. It means a a strap of nine flat leather bands uh, on an adulum. And at the tip of the flat leather straps would be shards of metal. It would be soaked in water so that the leather could stick to the body. The slap of the whip was not the pain one would be most concerned about. It would be the removal of the flesh from the metal shards that would rip the skin from the body. The prisoner would be tied, eagle, flat on a surface so as to get the best angle by the punisher. On either side of the prisoner would be two scribes leaning in to the whispers of the prisoner. And as the whip would shred the body, they would listen in to hear if the prisoner would betray any of his cohorts. And if he gave up those who were complicit in the crime it would be ordered that the whippings would be lighter and the shredding would not occur as severely. And as they leaned in to hear Jesus whisper, all they heard were moans, cries of pain. But to me, it's fitting because he he knew. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, all we, us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We are the authority of our own lives. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as the sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Before we pray and you're seated, I want you to think in your mind that most vile secret that you don't want anyone to know.
that would betray you and expose you for the sinner you are. And I want you to realize as they beat him, he never gave you up. He took it. He paid the full penalty of what you and I deserved and he never once whispered your name or mine. This is the God we serve. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Cause us to come alive to it as John prayed. Bless our time. Change our hearts. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Pontius Pilate awakened early in the morning, hearing the commotion outside. His servants come to him and say, there is a contingent of Jews. You must awaken. He says, leave them be. I don't want to be disturbed. They said, but Caiaphas is amongst them. Knowing that if, if he is not attended to, there will be a riot. So Pilate summons his servants to shave him and bathe him and prepare him. And he takes his time and he says, bring them into the seat of justice upon which I sit inside the praetorium. And in the praetorium, there is a, a council seat upon which he sits where he judges the affairs of all the Judean province as the chief authority for the greatest civilization the world had ever known at that point, which was Rome. And as he sits upon this throne, calling for Caiaphas to come in, ready to execute judgment on whatever issue it was that they felt so important to summon him at such an early morning, the response he gets from the Jews is, we can't come into the praetorium. We'll be defiled. We want to eat the Passover. The Passover is an expression of the Jews exiting the exodus out of Egypt in bondage and then entering into the promised land. And it was the Passover that was to kill the firstborn and the angel of death would pass over the home where the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost of the home. It was to be sprinkled on the top and on the sides and in the basin where the hyssop would be touched. And that's the exact place, if you can see in an illustration, where Jesus' hands were pierced, his crown of thorns placed on his skull and the nail in his feet and the blood poured out in those areas where you see upon the door. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the Paschal lamb. He is the the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world for the sins of all mankind. And here he is enduring the suffering and the pain and the beatings and the penalty for our sins. And we all complicit in the crime we've committed that he's paying the penalty for. He's not opening his mouth and giving us up. He's a lamb silent to the slaughter as the lashes get harder and the flesh is ripped from his body. And here the Jews want to kill him, but they don't want their hands defiled and they don't want to enter into a pagan hall whose authority they recognize, but in their pride, they keep some sort of semblance of their religiosity by saying we can't enter into a pagan temple but we recognize the pagan's authority. Pilate, irritated, says, then I will meet them in the court of the the citizens. And he steps out of the palace and comes to a seat that is more than likely made out of ivory, is how historians describe it, over 
uh, a pedestal of, of, of marble. And he sits in this seat, and on the seat are inscribed in Roman numerals what would be for us S-P-O-R, which means Senate, people of Rome. It's the seat of authority upon which he would rule as the authority over all Judea, representing Rome, again, the greatest empire the world had known at that point. And as they bring this bloody body of Jesus to Pilate, the blood is dripping on the marble. His face so swollen to make eye contact with Pilate is near impossible. As Isaiah declares his visage, his face was marred more than any other man. I have seen beatings of people. I've seen what man can do to man and what they did to Jesus. And as he's brought before Pilate, Pilate simply says as he examines this brutalized man who, who's he, who he's heard of. You can't be in Judea and not hear of a man walking on water and the dead being raised and the blind seeing and the lame walking and the deaf hearing, thousands being fed, storms being calmed. He knows of Jesus. He's heard of the triumphal entry. He heard the screams and the shouts, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. He knew this king had come in on the foal on a donkey. He knew of, of the excitement of the people. He knew who Jesus was. Now he's face to face with him. And he sees this man, so revered and now so beaten, blood dripping on his marble. And he says to the Jews, he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Meaning everything I've heard of him, this does not depict how you're to treat him. What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. He's vile and wretched. He must be put to death. And we can't kill him because we must worship the God we seek to kill. That's not what they said. And then Pilate said to them, you take him and you judge him according to your law. I want nothing to do with this. I am neutral. 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 Definition of neutral, it's an adjective. Not helping or supporting either side in a conflict. I'm neither for nor against. I'll neither fight for it nor defend it. Nor fight against it. I'm apathetic. I'm unengaging. The clutch is in neutral. We're going nowhere. He was neutral. And when Pilate says, you take him and you judge him according to your law, then the Jews revealed their hand. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They were seeking his death out of envy, Pilate would know. They were envious because he had won the hearts of the people. And they wanted the authority back that Jesus had secured. And they said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The Jews couldn't kill him. God was in complete control. Jesus had perceived the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane while the, the apostles slept. Jesus was prepared, and when the fiery serpent of 600 Roman soldiers came down, he stood in defense of his apostles behind him. He knew he was the one in control, even though it seemed as though the fiery serpent had engulfed all of them. To the point where Peter himself would deal with a secondary cause and cut off the ear of Malchus and Jesus would heal it and say, put your sword away, Peter. 
The primary cause is to be in the will of God the Father, and I stand where I'm supposed to be. Jesus was always in control. He was in control of the 800-year-old prophecy, 800 years before crucifixion had been invented, that would declare that Christ would hang from a tree. The Jews wouldn't kill him, they would stone him, and Jesus knew this. And he's standing there realizing they're turning me over to you to be crucified. And no man takes my life, I willingly lay it down. If you thought for a moment that that I am somehow controlled by you, I could summon 12 legions of angels. One angel wiped out 187,000 Assyrians. Could you imagine what 60,000 would do? Jesus is in control, though he's bound and beaten. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He said it with an air of authority, as a Roman prefect would do. Are you the king of the Jews? Maybe sneering at him, condescendingly, I don't know. But he was obviously in a position of authority to question Christ. Are you then the king of the Jews? You see, he had the authority. Are you the king of the Jews? I am the Roman prefect. I am the full authority in this land. And I ask you a question, you will stand before me and you will be questioned. I watched the Republican debates and I, 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 I shuddered at the silence and the meekness of Ted Cruz. Well, probably one of the smartest men up there and he wouldn't speak, interrupted continually by the other de- debaters, the candidates. And I turned to his, his chief counsel and I said, why, why doesn't he interrupt? And he said, of all the, the, the candidates for, the, for Republican president, he's the only one who's argued a number of cases before the Supreme Court. He has been instructed and trained that you do not interrupt those in authority. That's the way he operates. He's unfamiliar with that. that he, he, would, he would be able to present a case, but he must be given the freedom to speak. And he recognizes the authority of the Supreme Court and handles those debates as such. Well, this is Jesus. And, and here, the Supreme Court of the land is Pilate himself. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? And I love Jesus' response. Jesus immediately says, let me show you who's in charge. And the swollen visage of his face marred like no other man, blood dripping on the marble floor, hands tied behind his back, beard pulled out of his face. Jesus, having not slept in almost 30 hours, spent the night in a darkened dungeon abandoned by all who declared their allegiance to him. Jesus did his best through the swollenness of his eyes to see Pilate and look at him. And he said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? I will question you. Do you declare me to be a king because you believe it or Or do you declare me to be a king because of what someone else has said? Are you saying these statements out of your own conclusions or that of others? You see, Pilate is on trial, and so are we. Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you come to the conclusion 
that he's just a good man? Have you come to a conclusion that he's just one of many religious leaders? Have you come to the conclusion that he's a political reformer or that he's a social reformer? And have you come to that conclusion on your own, by your own studies, or by what someone said? Maybe it was a professor in one of your university studies that convinced you that Jesus isn't the Messiah, he's not the Son of God, and somewhere along the line, you embraced this thought of somebody else. You never did your own homework, you just came to the conclusion because it sounded so engaging. Is this your opinion, or is it one that someone else gave you? Are you, are you some sort of zombie that somebody imparted that to you? Or did you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed? Did you rightly divide the word of truth? Where did you come to this conclusion? Just as as Pilate is on trial, so are we. What do you say of Jesus? And the conclusion that you have, is this your own? Through your endless studies? Or is it somebody else's opinion? Because that question will determine the most important decision of your life. There is no other question of greater importance than that. None. You may challenge me on that and I will take you to the text and show you Jesus answered and he said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate answered and and to his credit, he said, am I a Jew? Some of you are here this morning, you've never stepped foot in a church, you're saying, listen, I don't need this, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a churchgoer, I'm not a Jew, don't put your religiousness on me, don't impart that to me, I understand that. Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation, your chief priest wants to deliver you to me. What have you done? And the the response probably from some in the room, look, I, I don't have a problem with Jesus, I have a problem with the church. Just as Pilate is saying, am I a Jew? I mean, it's your own people. It's, it's, it's the screwy nutballs that put you here. It's the church that's made you out to be the, someone that we don't even want to take notice of. If embracing you is, is my authority in life, do I have to be like one of the folks in the church? We are a peculiar bunch, I agree. But I would just say to those of you who would judge Jesus by the church... The church will let you down. I will. I guarantee it. Give me time if I haven't yet. But the Lord will never let you down. His word is true. When he says, am I a Jew? Your own people, the chief priests have delivered you to me. They're the ones that have have removed Jesus from the temple. What is it you've done? Why are they so angry at you? Jesus' response is powerful. He is still in control. He's still judging Pilate as he's judging us. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You know what he does at that moment? He declares himself to be a king. Not just a king, but the king of all authority. Ah, not a king of this world. I'm king of the universe. The universe of which I hold in the span of my hand. For you and me, it takes us a long time to get to the sun and 93 million miles away to the outer edges of the Milky Way galaxy to the edges of the known universe traveling at the speed of light we'll never reach it never 
We, like all humanity, are tiny. We're gnats on the butt of an elephant. And we try to put Jesus on trial. We demand answers from God. I will put you on trial. I wear the robe. I sit in the ivory chair. He's not on trial. We are. He's keeping our lungs moving, our heart beating. He's the one who feeds us and causes rain to fall upon our fields. He causes the sun to rise and the sun to set and the seasons to come and the seasons to go. He forms the child and knits the child together in its mother's womb. He's God. We're on trial, not him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That stuns Pilate. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm preexistent. That's a serious authority. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. I'm being delivered to the Jews by my own free will. There's a purpose behind this misery to set you free. I'm going to take the beating and I will be silent and I won't give up any of those conspirators who have committed sins and cosmic treason. I will bleed and die on their behalf and pay the penalty to set them free. I will cleanse them of all unrighteousness by faith if they would but trust me. I will never expose their deepest secrets. I will never reveal their their darkest sins. I will forgive them and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. I will be a lamb, silent to the slaughter. They may beat me harder. Your name will never leave my lips. I will never give them up. My kingdom is not from here. Pilate, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, you are a king then, is the way it should be translated in the Greek. You are a king then? Because Jesus' response says, you rightly, you say rightly that I am a king. Yes, I am. Again, I confirm it to you. I am an authority. And you, Pilate, are on trial. You see, Pilate, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. I came into the world. I was preexistent. I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. 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 Three quarters of Americans. Truth is subjective. Yeah, there's no such such thing as absolute truth. Three quarters of Americans. And Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Twice he declares truth. In John 14, he said, I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the fascinating thing to me is Pilate's response in verse 38. He says, what is truth? I don't know how he said it. It doesn't tell us in the written text. Did he say, what is truth? What, what is truth? What? Is truth? I don't know how he said it. He said it. And the question he asked, what is truth, is fascinating to me. Because he's standing before the embodiment of truth. He's standing before the eternal God who is the complete embodiment of truth. The words that leave Jesus' mouth are true. The life he lives is true. He is truth. 
He speaks it and he is it. And he's the only source of it. And when Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate was looking the truth straight in the face. And he said this and he went out again to the Jews. He says, I find no fault in him at all. I, I don't want anything to do with him. It was probably at that moment, as we saw in Mark, or John, um, Matthew 27, where his wife said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've had an awful dream about him. Pilate realized, I've never seen a man like this. I don't want anything to do with this. I remain neutral. Put the clutch in and put it in neutral. Problem. You can't be neutral with Jesus. He declared himself to be the truth. I remember a woman came to my office when we were in Skyline. I was a young senior pastor, and this woman comes in, and pretty lady, well-dressed, and that's what was stunning to me is that she was living in her car in a parking lot of a church. She'd been estranged from her family. She needed help. I needed to ascertain her circumstance so as not to just deal with her symptoms but get to the heart of the problem and to help her. And, and as I listened to her story, she began to talk about her family and being disconnected from her daughters and, and being divorced from her first husband and, and struggling and how she's volunteered in the community. And, and, and I was listening. I was moved by her story. I was compelled to help her. I was asking for references to follow up, to do due diligence. And, and, and then all of a sudden, it came out, and, and, uh, and she says, I, I, the only place I find safe haven is in the parking lot of the church. I said, why is that? Is it safe? Do they have a security guard? She says, no, it is a place where the satellites don't pick it up. I said, pick up what? She says, well, I've got tinfoil over the roof inside of my car. I said, uh, why? She says, so they can't track me. Who? She said, well, I I haven't told anyone this, and I I need to share this with you, that I've had an affair with the President of the United States, and they are trying to kill me. And um, uh, they're tracking me. They're probably tracking me right now. As I'm trying to bite my cheek, I'm pinching myself to keep my concern. I'm realizing this woman is a couple hot dogs short of a picnic. <laughs> and that her antennas aren't picking up all the stations. Her elevator's not going to the top floor. She doesn't have both oars in the water. Anyone? And I realized that truth for her was a fantasy. She was psychotic. She had broken away from reality. And her truth was a fantasy. So much so that it was compelling her to put tinfoil on the roof of her car. And so I, I, I met her where she was at, and I, I brought truth into the midst of her fantasy. And I said to her, well... You understand that adultery is, is not God's desire for you. Yes, I do. 
And, and are you convicted by the adultery? Yes, I am. Have you confessed it to God? Yes, I have. Well, it says in 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins as we confess our sins one to another. And he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So if you've confessed it and you've asked forgiveness, God has cleansed it and cast it as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. And I also want to share with you that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And if God is for you, no one or nothing can be against you. You're completely safe in his hand, and there's no authority on the earth that takes authority over God himself. And he gives peace when we trust him. You can just see her countenance change. As I brought truth into the midst of her fantasy, we prayed and she settled. From what I understand, not only was she recovered and doing well, she was serving at a ministry here locally and doing quite well. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. You see, for a lot of people, truth is fantasy. You've come up with some sort of concoction that that God doesn't exist and that we are some cosmic accident and and that this world has evolved and, and through billions and billions and billions of years, we've got these absolutely intricate cells. Everyone is so specific and unique and, and, and it's and complex and, and it's ordered and designed and we operate and we watch seasons come and go and we watch rain fall softly upon our field. We see seeds germinate, turn into plants. We feed upon the crops of those and we, we write it off to chance and we write it off to, to, to just chaos coming into some sort of order contrary to the second law of thermodynamics. But we've exchanged the truth for a lie and we live in this fantasy that somehow this fantasy is true to the point where we educate our children and we, we, we move entire governments based on this and, and we think that this is how it's supposed to operate, that man is the authority and we direct our our destinies and and God is removed from the equation. And if we can just remove the stupidity of having authority of of someone declaring themselves to be Jesus, we're going to be fine. And in this fantasy, we live and we declare it to be truth. It's like the Hindu blind men that came upon an elephant. And as each man started to touch a different part of the elephant, comparing the search for truth, the the Hindu blind men were standing around the elephant trying to figure out what it looked like, trying to come up with a truthful understanding of this elephant. And the one man touched the side of the elephant. He says, an elephant is much like a wall. Another man was touching the elephant's tail and says, an elephant is much like a rope. And the third blind man touching the ears, standing beneath the massive ears, he said, as these ears wave back and forth, an elephant is very, very much like a fan. And so the conclusion would be truth is dependent upon your point of view. Truth is dependent on your point of view. Such people have a fond saying, there are two sides to every issue. Yes. What is true for you may not be true for someone else. There are two sides to every issue. Yes, there's two sides to every question, to every issue. Yes. And there are two sides to flypaper. I would want that the fly would land on the right side. Be careful upon which side you land. And as we see this, if our truth is a fantasy and we exchange the truth for a lie, if we ignore the truth, we do so at our own peril. You will stand before God and give an accounting of your life. Who's going to cover your sins? 
It's not weighed in a balance. I have done more good than I've done evil. It doesn't work that way. God is completely without evil. One sin separates you from him for all eternity. There's no balance. The wages of sin is death. Those must be accounted for. And he was already beaten. He paid the price. He didn't give you up. Everyone has a standard by which they decide what is right and wrong. Yes? Is this true? Everyone has a standard by which they decide what is right and wrong. Trust me, as I've sat on the council these few months, I have come to know this. Everyone has a standard for what they believe is right and wrong. Oak trees must be protected, but not babies. I've come to see this. Everyone has a standard for what they believe is right and wrong. I love the story of the philosophy professor who would begin each new term by asking his class, do you believe that it can be shown that there are absolute values like justice? And the free-thinking students all argued that every, everything was relative and that no single law can be applied universally. Yeah, what's good for you may not be good for me. Before the end of the semester, the professor devoted one class period to, de- to the debate of that issue. And at the end, he concluded, regardless of what you think, I want you to know that absolute values can be demonstrated, and if you don't accept what I say, I will flunk you. (laughs) At which point, one angry student got up and insisted, that is not fair. And the professor says, you have just proved my point. You've appealed to a higher standard of fairness. Our rights don't come from the Constitution. Our rights come from God. Our rights don't come from man, they come from God, a higher authority. The problem is not that people reject truth. Let me say that again. The problem is not that people reject truth. Let me say it again. The problem is not that people reject truth. The problem is they're rejecting someone else's right to decide what is right and wrong. You see, we want to be our own authority. We want to be in charge. Isn't that the desire of all men? To be like the Most High. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. They want to be the ones who decide what is moral and what isn't. Saving a tree is moral. A baby is not moral. You see, that was Pilate's problem. He was used to being in charge. Right now in our government, there are a lot of people who are used to being in charge. Government has grown big. And they have enforced that authority upon every man and woman. Government has grown so big that they are into everything. When, from the moment we wake up to the time we go to bed, they've taxed everything we've done. They regulate everything from our toilet paper to our gasoline to everything. I don't know why I use those two, but I did. And they're used to being in charge. So was Pilate. He was, he was the prefect of Judea. He was the procurator of all of Jerusalem. He was the one who set the rules. He was the judge and the authority. You know what Pilate's problem with Jesus was? Pilate's problem with Jesus is probably the same problem some of you have. It was simply this. That from the moment that Jesus stepped through the door, he was in charge. That's hard to accept. 
Jesus not only be, claimed to be king, but he claimed to have absolute moral authority. Wow. John eighteen thirty seven. You were right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify of the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I am truth. You see, Pilate himself, like us this morning, he was under judgment. And Pilate wasn't used to letting someone else in that position. And no one likes to be told they're wrong. I get it. I'm almost finished, and I'll, I'll share this with you. I love the story of the three sons who read the will of their father after he had died. The father left them three instructions in his will. Number one, they were to sell 40 acres of their ground in another county to cover the costs of his burial. Number two, they were to take some of the money to dig another well on the farm to water the cattle. And the third thing is that they were to buy the stones for the memorial for his gravesite from a mason in a neighboring town that it was his personal friend. So the boys went and they looked over the 40-acre plot in the other county and they realized that their dad was very wise in this and there was property that had produced a good crop and they believed it would help defray the costs of, of the funeral, so they put it up for sale as their father had requested. And then they took a look at the well that had been dug years before and realized it was not meeting the needs of the farm, it wasn't satiating the cattle, and so they knew a deeper well needed to be dug and so they all agreed and they dug the deeper well. But then they took... After they dug the well deeper, and they agreed that their father was wise in these first two areas, and they, they went and they visited the stonemason, who was his friend in the neighboring city, and they priced the stones for their father's grave, and they realized that the man that was selling the stones was charging almost twice as much for the headstone as they could get from a larger city next, next to their city, about an hour away. So they decided not to buy the stone from their father's friend, but instead they went to a faraway city and bought the father's gravestone there. And, and, and as you read this, the question would simply be, the father left his sons with three requests. And the question is, did the sons obey their father? How many of you believe that they obeyed their father in two of the three requests? A couple of you? The real answer to the question is they didn't obey their father at all. They only followed their father's wishes when they agreed with his wishes. That's not how you follow Christ. He is the authority. Once the dad died, they were masters of the estate, not their father. And this is how it applies to us this morning. Just like Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. And what he's saying is, I am the master. I am the authority. You and I can't be that authority. I can't be that authority in your life. You can't be that authority in my life. No president, no congressman, no religious authority can give you total truth, but Jesus can. He's the only one who can do it because Jesus has the truth because only Jesus is the truth. And the old hymn about Pilate, let it echo in your ears. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? 
as we close the message this morning. There's a new sheriff in town, and you are, and I are not him. And he's always been the authority. He's the God of the universe. His name is Jesus. And he came to set you and me free. He came to cleanse us of our sin and our unrighteousness. He came to forgive us our cosmic treason. He came to take the authority that we declare for ourselves that we might give it to him. In our rebellion, we yield to his authority and say, I submit to you. You are my master. You are my Lord. He's a good king. He's a king of truth and a king of love. He loved you so much that he never betrayed and gave up your name, no matter how heavy the lashes. He was a lamb, silent to the slaughter. He never gave you up and he never will give you up. You give him your life, he'll never let you go. But he must be master. There's no neutrality. Like Pilate, you and I are on trial. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a liar or is he Lord? Is he your king? Will you step outside of your fantasy and embrace the truth? You are never in control of anything and you never will be. God is in control of every sparrow that falls from the sky and every hair numbered on your head. Don't live in the fantasy that somehow you're in control. It's only God. And Jesus comes that you might have life and life more abundant. He comes to forgive you and cleanse you and never let you go. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to him. Because today, we are on trial. And today, God wants to settle the case. And he wants your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He wants to give you eternal life, and that life is found in his Son. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. He's the authority that can take us off the slave block. We're no longer guilty when the king forgives.